The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I am John McKenzie and I'm joined as I always am by my good friend and producer Mike Zimmerman. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, John. Just uh, just enjoying the last few weeks of summer. Mm, and the last few weeks of the transfer window. But the less said about that, the better for, for you in particular as a Liverpool fan. But we have much more exciting things to talk about this week because this week we are joined by Jay Harris who is the Athletics Brentford reporter to talk all about his podcast series that has recently gone out called Access All Areas Brentford which is four episodes long and is available on the Athletics Go Deeper podcast platform and so what we're talking about is all about Brentford particularly focusing on the recruitment side of things and Mike you've just listened into that conversation what did you make of it? Yeah, John, for me, it was just, it was the all access that, that Jay got. We're not used to seeing clubs open up their doors to, to journalists and people in the media to kind of give an inside look. And, and I think Jay kind of really, he, he showed exactly what Brentford's all about. They don't have the money to compete with, with the big six clubs, but what they do have is kind of the knowledge and, and the ability to to take these players who aren't necessarily excelling at other clubs and bring them into their system and really get the best out of them. And I think we've seen that under Thomas Frank. Yeah, and like you say, there's not a huge amount of option for people to listen to that kind of access at a Premier League side. So I do recommend that people go across and listen to those podcasts. They're really, really good entertainment and really, really insightful as well. But I think, again, the best thing for us to do now is to just jump into that conversation with Jay Harris and think all about Brentford. In the Premier League, there are always teams outside the big sides who attract attention. We've seen Brighton be a perennial topic of conversation with Graham Potter and then Roberto De Zerbi. They made them a very solid top-half side. And everyone was talking about Southampton a few seasons ago. Uh, and now everyone is talking about Bournemouth in the same sort of vein. But then we have Brentford. The London-based team are not exactly going under the radar and it would be impossible for them to do so because they've just had a ninth place finish in the Premier League last time out. But it does feel as though there is a little bit more of a mystery surrounding them. They feel like a club who does well, even though many neutrals don't seem to expect it. And I've got a lot of friends who have been talking about them in the conversation for relegation, which seems nuts to me. But um, fortunately, today I'm joined by someone who can help us demystify Brentford a little. It's Jay Harris, the Athletics Brentford reporter. So Jay, thanks so much for coming on to the show today. Absolute pleasure, because I think for people that don't see us in the office day in, day out, but probably don't realise we talk all the time, um, but just we've never crossed paths professionally yet. So yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun, I think. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. And as you know, I'm a, a massive fan of what Brentford are doing as well. So we've spent many, many hours talking about what's going on at Brentford. And that's what we're going to do in this podcast episode today. So we're going to split the episode into two parts in particular. We'll spend a little bit of time talking about who Brentford are, because I think for a lot of fans around the world, Brentford sort of came out of nowhere and they won't know a huge amount about the background of the club. Um, but also you have just recorded a podcast series called Access All Areas Brentford, where you were able to go behind the scenes a little bit and find out a little bit more about the club. And you talked to, uh, in particular about um, the recruitment in one of the episodes. And I think that's a really interesting aspect of what's going on at Brentford as well. So that's the general plan for the podcast episode. So let's just jump in. And as I say, you've, you've recorded this podcast series uh, called 
Access All Areas Brentford, you're able to go behind the scenes, you got to speak to a lot of the decision makers, some of the players, you got to speak to Thomas Frank, the coach as well, to find out a little bit more about the team that you're covering. So first and foremost, what, I'm interested to hear what you think that you learned about Brentford from this experience, because I think it's a, it's a very different experience to just sort of covering the club, to then being able to go and have, have access to the club in that way. Yeah, um, I think you obviously learn a little bit more about why some of the decisions have been made over the years. Um, I've been covering Brentford for two years now, so I've had a really good fun covering their journey, but that's just been while I've been in the Premier League. So I think for, you know, the director of football, Phil Giles, for Thomas Frank to contextualise some of the stuff that happened before I started covering the club in a little more detail was really interesting. And, you know, I'm sure we'll cover it over this podcast, but so many people talk about Brentford quite highly in terms of, they just do things a little bit differently, but it's still nerve-wracking to do that so I think it was quite refreshing to hear them say yeah we have had bumps in the road and look we don't have the answers to everything but we were bold enough to try try something to risk something and it worked out so hearing about a few specific instances was quite interesting. Well let's get on to talk about Brentford in general so for those listeners who maybe don't know much about them can you give us a little bit of an overview of Brentford's past because I think the big question is how did a small club from the southwest of London just end up in the Premier League out of nowhere? Yeah so I'll try and whiz through it as quickly as possible but basically um, Brentford hadn't been in the top flight for 74 years which is um, yeah a very very long time and they'd basically just been bouncing around in League One and League Two and for people who maybe don't live in London and, and don't live in England, it's probably important to contextualise like, the geography of Brentford as well. They are in West London, um, right by the River Thames, not too far away from Twickenham, which is kind of like the heartland of rugby. And in West London, it's obviously a very crowded area. So you've got Chelsea, who are the top dogs. You've got Fulham, who've obviously, um, you know, over this century kind of bounced in between the Premier League and the Championship. You've got QPR, who kind of had their, you know, three seasons or so in the Premier League as well. So Brentford were kind of way, way, way down the pecking order. Griffin Park, which was their old stadium, had maybe, I think, a 12,000 capacity. So very, very tiny. Um, so Brentford's rivals, in theory, are Fulham and QPR, but I don't think they bothered them for so long. Uh, they, like, those teams didn't really care about Brentford. Um, Brentford had a lot of financial issues at the, the turn of the century to the point that fan groups would basically stand outside the stadium with collection buckets asking for you know, fans to chuck in a P or two P or a pound or two pounds to basically help keep the club going. So for that to have been their existence 15, 20 years ago and for them to now be in the Premier League and as you said at the beginning to have finished ninth is, is quite remarkable and it all comes down really to Matthew Benham. Um, he took over the club in 2012. He was, well, he grew up supporting Brentford. Um, he'd been, you know, like an investment banker so he had a background in business. He then sets up this company called Smart Odds, which is to do with gambling, makes a lot of money from it, and then eventually gets to the point where he decides he wants to invest in Brentford. And I think the initial plan was to basically help them become a championship team. So it's exceeded everybody's expectations, but that's kind of like the very, very short version of their history. Yeah, and it's interesting hearing you mention Matthew Benham because he is so key to everything that's going on. Um, I've got a question here just asking how important is it for anyone wanting to understand the ethos of Brentford in general to actually understand Matthew Benham because th there seems to be a lot of correlation between the way that he thinks about sport and, and the way that Brentford are set up, right? Yeah, massively. So I mentioned it a moment ago, but his company Smart Odds, I'm not an expert on how gambling works by any stretch of the imagination, but basically he just kind of helps people beat the odds, beat the systems. 
and he will have masses and masses amount of data. So we talk about XG and things like that all the time. Whereas maybe 20 years ago, Benham's company, Smartos, was probably using a version of XG before it had kind of been popularized. So I guess you could say quite forward thinking in their approach to not just football, but all sports in general. Um, and it was about using the data, I guess, to more accurately predict football's results. And then eventually someone, whether that was Matthew or someone within his company said, do you know what, we could actually probably apply this to, to running a football club. So I know we're going to talk a lot about recruitment further on, but a big thing for Brentford when Benham first took over in 2012 was basically trying to completely change the way the club signed players. So I think it's probably fair to say back in the early noughties, a lot of the way football business was conducted was you hire a manager, he's worked with player X and player Y before, he gets on really well with them, so he's going to sign them. But obviously putting players in... Uh, different formations, different systems at different clubs doesn't always work. So Brentford just started looking at the data and, you know, picking a player maybe from the French second division and saying, this player's okay in that system. We think he might be excellent in Brentford's system. Um, and obviously they do a lot of an analysis on it, a lot of research on it, and it just seems to have worked fantastically well. But it's all to do with looking at the numbers. But it's not just that, but it's a big part of it. Yeah, and I think the word that I kept hearing cropping up in the podcast series itself was the word sensible um so yeah why do you why is it that you think that sensible is such a good word to describe what it is that brentford are about it, <laughs> the the sensible thing makes me chuckle because surely every club should want to be <laughs> sensible but the fact that we're so surprised the clubs describe themselves as sensible kind of um encapsulates how mad football can be sometimes but i think brentford just are quite pragmatic. The people that run the club are very pragmatic. And the, the most recent example I can give you, you know, literally as we've started, Arsenal have now officially let David Rea go on loan to Arsenal, although that's probably going to get made permanent for £27 million. Brentford signed his replacement two days after last season ended. So they were being very proactive. And the situation was still live at that point. No one really knew what was going to happen with Rea, but they basically said, we're not going to take any risks. We don't want to get to a point where we're two weeks before the season starts or the season started and we've got a goalkeeper who doesn't really want to be here and it's left us in a sticky situation. They've just said, we're going to deal with this before it happens. And so they got Flecken in. He can obviously then train with the team throughout pre-season. Raya was kind of pushed to the side. And so when the Raya deal does happen, there's not much disruption that's been caused. So if you contrast it to what's happening with West Ham and Declan Rice, obviously West Ham are in a bit of a awkward situation now where they've received a lot of money but everyone knows they've got that money so they're going to be charged a premium for everything so I think that's just an example of Brentford being sensible instead of you know maybe telling themselves what if we can convince David Rea to stay almost accepting the fact he's made this decision he wants to leave he's earned that opportunity as well to go to a bigger club so we're just going to deal with this before it causes us any major issues. I think process is probably an interesting word to talk about as well because whenever I Look, and we're going to talk about this again later when we're talking about recruitment, but it seems as though everything in the club is geared around a singular process, which everyone knows what the process is. Everyone knows their their 
their, their how they fit into that system and that process and that's what happens you say well th- th- this is the process if if one part of the process doesn't work then we we uh, we're not going to m- maybe sign that player if it doesn't fit the process it's always thinking in terms of the big picture rather than sometimes as you said in the past clubs can just focus on the short-term gains this is all about long-term thinking right yeah and another example of of the process is Ivan Tony. Um, so it did make me laugh after the um, the two will draw with with Tottenham on Sunday. Thomas Frank was asked again about whether Brentford were going to sign Ivan Tony, and he literally said no, 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 and no. And first of all, Tony's only gone for six months, so he's going to be back in January. So it's just a little bit like a player having some sort of serious injury. Um, Tony's obviously integral to the way Brentford play, so the second he's back, he's probably going to start. So are you going to commit a lot of money? to having someone for six months who's going to play second fiddle. That's, doesn't really make much sense. Brentford have also signed players like Johan Visser, Brian Mbumo, Kevin Schada, Keen Lewis Potter, and told them there's a pathway for you. So it was very much about just being sensible and saying, okay, Tony's gone for a while, but we don't need to panic because if we suddenly disrupt what we're doing, it can have knock-on effects further down the line. So in the course of the series that you've just recorded, you spoke to a lot of different people at different times, different places. To what extent did you get a sense of that togetherness from talking to, to different people? Did you get the impression that everyone knows roughly what everyone else is thinking and, and there's, there is this sort of unified plan above everything? Yeah, massively. I think, first of all, Phil Giles, who's the director of football, has been there since May 2015, so that's eight years. Thomas Frank has been head coach for nearly five years, but he was assistant coach for two years before that, so that's seven years. So already you've got a couple of key figures at the club who've been there for a long time and can provide that security. Um, Whenever I go to the training ground for a press conference or to the stadium on a match day, you constantly see people interacting with each other. I think I had a tour of the training ground once and what really struck me was that where the players eat in the canteen, firstly, Maybe this is just me being lacking architecture and becoming boring as I get older. I don't know. But firstly, it was um, floor to ceiling windows. So a lot of light came in, very bright space. Quite like, um, I guess, like an exciting place to be. We might take it for granted, but imagine if you're a footballer going into like a grey classroom every day. Probably does it affect your mood a little bit. Um, But more importantly, you had the media staff, the IT staff, the senior figures at the club, the director of football, the technical director and the players all eating in the exact same location and all, you know, quickly chatting to each other when they're getting a dessert or while they're getting their meal. And I think that kind of human aspect of it, when players are on so much money, I think other clubs maybe don't do that. And so I think making sure that people, just a bit of cross-pollination really, making sure that people at the top of the club still speak to people at the bottom of the club and that's a nice friendly atmosphere, I think that goes a long way to making sure that on a Saturday, if you're 1-0 down, that the teammates fight for each other and that the teammates trust in the coach and believe in the coach just doing tiny things like that. One of the things I've heard about the, the canteen is that they have, I, I believe, the number of set-piece goals that they've scored each season being tallied up in, in the canteen <laughs> so that they can see 
the the goals that are being scored through set pieces as they're eating their porridge okay. in the morning which again i find really interesting because it's not just it's not just creating a community of of people who have to come together and, and work it's also you know it's reminding them you know this is what we're working towards these these are the goals that we're working for it's very obvious it's there in the canteen as we're as we're eating this is what we're all about and i think that's that's something i've found so interesting about about brentford as well they take even like the the marginal gains that you can get um so set piece is another great example of that right how important Brentford take their set pieces put a huge amount of work and effort into developing those routines getting the players to understand them and actually it was I think it was Ben Mee talking who talked a little bit about how difficult it is coming to Brentford because you have all of this information you have to take in when you join about where you have to stand on the pitch obviously the set pieces come into that as well but what's going on there is again it's it's just saying okay we're unified together we're going to have a huge amount of people working here we're going to try and find those marginal gains so we can become really good I, I mentioned at the beginning Brentford are an interesting team because a lot of people expect them to be not good because they look at the players they've got and they're like you know there's teams with better squads out there but the the point I, I always come back to with Brentford is that everyone knows what they're doing the process is there and as a result of that you get a huge amount of upside that a lot of teams won't get because they aren't looking for those marginal gains all the time yeah and what you said about Ben Mee's like a really good point the idea that you know he basically told me that during his time at Burnley although he received a lot of coaching about what to do when Burnley didn't have the ball mm-hmm the exact phrase he used was off the cuff in terms of what to do on the ball. Um, And that's just, it's quite wild to think about it that, you know, defenders are basically told, just make it up as you go along. So the fact that every single player in Brentford knows what their responsibility is on the ball and off the ball might sound so simplistic or sensible if you like, Mm -hmm. but it has like, it has like a massive impact. And, you know, I've obviously joked with Ben on social, with Ben me on social media about the fact that I had a very different perception of him when he joined the club. So, Again, when, when we come on to recruitment, we'll talk about Brentford's reputation for developing young players. But actually, they've done it with Ben Mee as well, who joined the club when he was, I think, 32 and just about to turn 33. But they brought this completely different side of his game out of him. And that's why I asked him as part of the podcast. I said, were Brentford kind of approaching you saying, we know you've not done this for 10 years at Burnley, but we think you've got the ability to be a, a ball-playing left-sided centre-back. And he was like, yeah, basically. And I think it's just, it, it's so impressive that a player didn't realise he had that capability and it basically got coached out into him at such a late stage of his career. I've actually heard someone talk about Brighton in the same way. So I think it was Lewis Dunk that they were talking about and saying, if you actually look at his passing stats before he joins Brighton, he doesn't look like he's going to be a great ball playing centre-back. And yet clearly Brighton have identified something in him that is actually the teams that he's playing for aren't allowing him to open this side of his game up. We think it's there based on whatever scouting data etc and as a result you can bring someone in who maybe the market isn't valuing particularly well because um because they don't they look at the raw data and they say well he's not doing this so he can't do it and it's not always it's not always the case right so yeah really really interesting the other thing i wanted to talk about with brentford is that their rise has been relatively meteoric right it's not that long ago since they were in the in the in the lower divisions of english football and i think when you rise that quickly there's going to be people around the club who still remember what it's like to be outside of the top flight and I think there's a sense in which Brentford are able to get buy-in and they're able to think carefully about these processes that we're talking about because there's a realisation that actually we got where we are by having these processes in the first place right. Yeah definitely I think Brentford completely respect the fact that they've come from quite humble beginnings you know the first thing Thomas Frank talks about in a lot of his press conferences is that people always ask him where are Brentford going to finish this season and he says hopefully as high as possible but I recognise and respect the fact that we might get relegated. You know, we could finish anywhere 
if you ignore the, the top six teams in Newcastle and maybe Villa and Brighton, he basically says those 11 teams could finish anywhere. And I think that's important to not be overconfident and think, OK, we finished 13th our first season in the Premier League, ninth in our second season, which means we're constantly going to go up. And yeah, exactly that. You know, Brentford's, I think, annual turnover when they were in the championship was about £10 million. And now, first season in the Premier League, I think it was around £160 million. So it's absolutely shot through the roof to record levels. It's very easy for people in those situations to get carried away and quite spending money frivolously very quickly. But Brentford are still doing the same things that got them to this place and made them successful in the first place. They're still focusing on signing young players aged around 20, 21, 22, 23 and trying to take them to the next level. They're not suddenly saying, okay, well, we're going to spend £50 million on a 27-year-old striker with not much resale value. They're still just making sure that they stick to the plan that they've had all this time. And, that, and that's important because if you allow yourself to get caught up in the, the hype and the excitement of of competing in the Premier League, you'll quickly make the wrong decision. You just have to stick to what works for Brentford because what works for Brentford and Brighton won't work for a, a West Ham or a Southampton or a Bournemouth or whoever it is. Mm. Yeah, and as a Leeds fan, I know just, <laughs> just how quickly things can go wrong in that regard. But a name that you've mentioned a lot so far is Thomas Frank. Obviously, he's the, the manager of the club. But tell us a little bit more about him because to an outsider like me, he just seems like the perfect coach for a club like Brentford. I think, firstly, he, he's... I really enjoy speaking to him in a press conference every week. Um, he's always willing to open up and engage. Look, he's not going to give away his tactical secrets all the time, but he's definitely willing to kind of have a little bit of a conversation with, with what his thinking's behind certain moves and, and signing certain players. Um, when you listen to the podcast, what you'll hear people say all the time about Thomas Frank is that he's very open-minded um, and that he's willing to try different things. So like any coach, obviously he's confident in his plan A, but he's willing to be persuaded and listen to other people about, okay, you need a plan B or a plan C. I think in an ideal world, Thomas Frank wants to play Barcelona under Pep Guardiola-esque football. You know, he wants to keep the ball and have as much possession as possible and be quite intricate. I think Ivan Tony wouldn't necessarily be his ideal forward. It'd be probably someone a little bit more like Ollie Watkins, who he worked with in the past, a bit of a hybrid forward who can, you know, go out wide or make runs in behind. But Thomas Frank recognised that Brentford needed to be pragmatic when they got promoted to the Premier League. They couldn't just continue to hold on to the ball and dominate teams the way they did in the Championship. They would have got absolutely blown away. So I think the fact that he was able to not completely change Brentford's tactics, but make some really important tweaks um, so that Brentford could survive in the Premier League is kind of the best part of his, of his skill set. I remember him saying to me before that when Brentford got promoted... He just knew he had to work on the defence. That was the one area that he looked at the most. He wasn't worried about whether Brentford were going to be able to score goals. He knew that came first and foremost. So he's had to sacrifice some of his ideals to make Brentford a success. And I think that's the sign of a good coach. If you're willing to kind of compromise your values to a degree, not completely, um, but if you manage to get the best out of the materials at your disposal or the players at your disposal, even if they're not completely how you'd like them to be, that's all you want, right? Yeah, and we're starting to talk about this sensible approach on the pitch now, not just off it. So I'm interested in hearing a little bit more from you about how Brentford do play 
Um, and maybe we can talk a little bit about what you think the future of that's going to be because you're suggesting there a little bit that <laughs> Thomas Frank is working towards changing the style of play in the yeah. long run. But what, what would you say now is, is what people should look, for, look out for when they're watching Brentford? Over the last two seasons in the Premier League, I think a lot of the time um, Thomas Frank's favoured a 3-5-2 formation. So in that debut season in the Premier League, it would be Sergi Canos on right wing back, Rico Henry at left wing back, and normally Ivan Tony and Brown and Boomer up front. And obviously having those three centre-backs gave Brentford that extra security when they were coming up against teams who were going to basically dominate possession. And then they'd have Christian Norgard as the, the central defensive midfielder as well. So it was very pragmatic. Canos was more of a winger than a wing back, to be honest. And then you'd have Rico Henry, who'd be a bit more defensive on the other side. And then he's slowly become more confident to, to use a 4-3-3. I think Ericsson arriving was a, a big part of that. If, you know, if you've got Ericsson for six months, you don't want to shackle him in a 3-5-2. In a you want to let him run right in a 4-3-3. In a but I think that speaks to where Thomas Frank was pragmatic. Every time he came up against a top six side, he just said, right, we're going to have to do the basics here and, and think of other ways to, to beat them. What I expect will happen now, especially with Tony being out until January, I think you're going to see Brentford be a little bit more ball dominant. Thomas Franks mentioned it a lot in the press conferences in pre-season and ahead of the first game of the season. I think he just wants Brentford to, after two years, I guess to flex a little bit more, to be a bit more confident. They've obviously got better players now. You know, they've signed Nathan Collins from Wolves and we know that Collins is really good on the ball. I mean, Aaron Hickey's fantastic on the ball and he's also left-footed and right-footed. So that really kind of opens up some of the options for Brentford. Um, you know, they've signed Mikkel Damsgaard. Okay, it's not quite worked out for him at Brentford yet, but they're kind of slowly upping the quality of players that they've got, which means they'll be better in possession, which means Brentford can be yeah, a bit more dominant against teams. So I think that's the trend that we're going to see this season. Yeah, and we've seen a mixture of those two things, I think, over the course of the last couple of seasons. That pragmatism has got them results, I think, against every one of the big six. Yeah, they've beaten the every of one of the seasons. big six. Yeah. Yeah. Man City um, twice, Chelsea at Stamford Bridge twice. Man United 4-0. Can you tell I've got them all like... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> There's the Arsenal game that you're, 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 uh, you're missing as well, which was the big... That was the big first yeah. one, right? Where everyone was like, right, we can do this. Yeah, but I mean, the atmosphere that day was just another level. It, it did almost feel like Brentford had absolutely nothing to lose. You know, everybody's expectations of Brentford were so low. If Arsenal had turned them over 5-0, I don't think anybody would have blinked twice. But I think when you contextualise, it was Brentford's, you know, first game in the top flight in 74 years. It was the first game of their new stadium with like um, a full crowd. First game in the Premier League full stadium post-Covid. Arsenal on the day had Lacazette and Aubameyang ruled out through Covid. Like all the ingredients were there for, for Brentford to win. But I think also just the way Brentford pressed teams from the front really surprised Arsenal that day. Um, and I know you're a big fan of throw-ins and set pieces and things like that. But a, a throw-in came, uh, their second goal came from a throw-in. And some people still in this day and age have quite like a, a negative view of throw-ins. Certainly, I've, I won't name names. But I've got a few colleagues who have, you know, thrown spurious <laughs> glances at Brentford using uh, throw-ins. But if it gets them three or four goals a season, why would you not do it? Because that's the difference between three, four, five points. And if you're a team like Brentford with the resources that they have, that could be the difference between staying up or going down. Mm -hmm. So I think the fact that they don't think they're better than having clever corner routines and throw-ins when other teams do, yeah. I think is really important. It's something like 30 goals that were scored by Brentford through various forms of set pieces last It's season. also just a lot of fun watching Brentford do <laughs> random set pieces. I mean, I often find when I go to games, I find the interactions between the bench and the players on the pitch sometimes more interesting than what happens on the pitch. 
So um, Brentford's tactical statistician, Bernardo Cueva, um, he's kind of the man with all the crazy plans when it comes to Brentford's corners and set pieces. And any time they've got a corner or a set piece, he'll just come to the edge of the technical area, make all these signals. And I'm always trying to, always <laughs> trying to work out what they, what they are. Um, I don't know if people watching can, can watch, I don't know if people listening can watch back, but um, they had a corner against Tottenham on Sunday and Nathan Collins did this pirouette that honestly could have been out of like <laughs> some sort of ballet or something like that. Like it looked so pretty and it actually worked. Like, it's just like, how have you convinced like a six foot four, six foot five defender to make such elegant movement and, and get on the end of a header? It's very clever and it's very fun to watch. Yeah, and the, you mentioned the interaction between the bench and, and the players. But almost every time Brentford get a corner, you see David Raya coming across to speak yeah. to the, the technical staff when it's happening for the obviously not when it's a, yeah. a, a Brentford corner he is in goal for, for those ones but um, yeah it, it's really really interesting just how well planned everything is and that comes back to as we said before the fact that this is all about process this is all about the fine margins we mentioned you know pushing 30 goals through set pieces that's if you had a striker who's scoring 30 goals in a season that's going to cost you multiple millions of pounds but if you can find those fine margins on the pitch you save yourself a huge amount of money in terms of playing squad and and also with David Rea and Mark Flecken did do it um, on his debut on Sunday coming to the to the halfway line and speaking to the bench I asked Rea about it when I interviewed him in February because every time he does it um, I've seen it so many times now that it's just second nature to me but you, I'll always get another member of um, you know the journalist in the press box saying Brentford are going to concede if, if he keeps doing that. And, you know, it kind of famously happened in the championship playoff semi-final when they pushed everybody forward and kind of got exposed. Um, but Rea said something really smart, which seems obvious, but he said sometimes he speaks to the coaches to give them information because he can obviously see things that they can't. Um, but they also sometimes tell him about substitutions and who's going to play where. And again, that might seem obvious. If a left winger's coming on, surely he's going to play on the left wing. But... And Boomer, I think, was Brentford's second top goal scorer after Ivan Tony last season. And most of the time, would play as a second striker with him. But I've seen Mbumo play at left wing back, right wing back, right wing, as well as a second striker. So I think that's really important context for Rea to know, OK, Mbumo's not playing on the right wing here. He's going left wing back. So I'm going to start hitting diagonals towards him. Tiny things like that. Because I think you're talking about the ways Brentford are clever and sensible. Thomas Frank will always try and use all five substitutions. Um, and on the opening day of last season, they were 2-0 down to Leicester after 46 minutes and looked dreadful. He made, I think he made all five subs that day. They drew two all. And Rodgers didn't really know what to do. You could see the tide was turning after it went 2-1. And I think Thomas Frank and his coaching staff were able to recognise they got game plan A wrong, but they were proactive enough to change it to game plan B. And then you had a manager on the other team who just had absolutely no idea how to stop it. So all the tiny details add up and count. Mm. Yeah. And just to, even just the, the wherewithal to think the, the amount of information that we can get across is crucial. So take every opportunity we have to get yeah. information across, get the goalkeeper across, because the goalkeeper can talk to players as well. You can say if you get the chance to talk to X, Y or Z, just tell them this as well. Just getting all that information out there. And again, fine margins all the time. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. 
And I'm interested in your thoughts, actually, on how this sensible a- approach that we've been talking about on and off the pitch has translated onto the fan base. So do you think that the fans are pretty happy trusting the process that the club have implemented? And do you think that gives someone like Thomas Frank a little bit more leeway when maybe there's a little bit of a run of, of bad form? <laughs> it's funny you say that because uh, <laughs> Thomas Frank was asked um, last week about Flecken replacing Raya. Um, because I think Flecken had a couple of maybe shaky performances on their pre-season tour in the US and, and Thomas Frank basically turned around and said, if Brentford have 100,000 fans, if only 20 or 50 um, are kind of criticising something, I'm, I'm not too worried. If it was 50,000, I'd pay a bit of attention. So that gives you a little bit of an insight. But I think, as I said earlier, Brentford hadn't been in the top flight for 74 years. They were being run dreadfully. Um, before the fan base kind of took over and helped stabilise them before Benham took over. And they'd just been in League One and League Two for so long. I think they were all willing to say, we don't quite know what you're doing with these data signings. We've gone from picking up maybe a core of British players to all of a sudden scouting players from Denmark, Germany, uh, the French second division. You've got rid of the B team. I think there are a lot of things fans were raising eyebrows at not got rid of the B team, sorry, implemented the B team, got rid of the academy. Lots of things fans were raising eyebrows at, but they were like, well, we've been in League Two and League One for so long anyways, surely the only way is up. Um, so I think the senior figures at the club have so much credit in the bank. Mm. Um, but when they were first implementing some of these changes, were people looking at it thinking, I've got no idea what's going on? Um, definitely. Um, and I think even some of the players they're still signing now is a great example. Like everybody knows who Mikhailo Mudrik is now. But this time a year ago when Brentford were chasing him, it's quite funny. You see the discourse change around the player. At first, all these Brentford fans were like, who on earth is Mudrik? Sounds amazing. Looks amazing from the small footage that was available. And all of a sudden fans from other teams were kind of like, well, if Brentford liked Mudrik, <laughs> he must be a good player. And, you know, all of a sudden, Mudrik went from being around 20 million euros um, to I think he eventually went to, to Chelsea for 100 million euros. Mm. So um, when Brentford are linked with these types of players um, and then sign Anoli Watkins from Exeter City in League Two and he eventually becomes a Premier League player and an England international, you sign Ivan Tony from League One, you turn him into an England international. Of course, there have been times where the fans were upset when they sold Watkins or Ben Rama. And it will probably happen with Tony at some point. You know, I'm sure they're a little bit upset that Ray has gone now. But I think they just trust that the club's always got some sort of process and backup plan and, and will be fine. Well, we've already started moving towards questions about recruitment. But before we arrive there, I did just want to ask you a question about your experience of covering a club like Brentford. When you have that kind of exposure to a club that is smart, it is sensible, does it change your opinions on how football clubs should be run? I think I'm probably a little bit biased because, you know, I seem to be covering a club that is very sensible but I think because this is my first job where I'm a reporter and I'm covering a club week in week out you just have a better appreciation of how important even the small tiny details are Um, so the fact that Brentford quite quietly um, six months after that after they got promoted just started you know agreeing long-term contracts with all their best players Um, so you know, and Boomer, I think, is tied down till 2026. I think Janelt's 2026. I think Norgar's 2026. Um, I think Onyeka recently signed a new long-term contract. They just seem to be ahead of the ball so often. Um, I know that Reyes leaving the club now because he's only got a year left on his contract. 
but that's after they've made two contract offers to him. So they try to anticipate that situation as much as possible. So I think when you're on the outside looking in and you're maybe not involved in a club day to day, or you're just a fan at home on a sofa, you maybe don't appreciate how important it is to really have a grasp on so many different things so far ahead in the future. So covering Brentford's made me realise all those important key little details. And again, the Ivan Tony example I gave earlier is really important. Brentford could go out and spend 30, 40, 50 million pounds, well, maybe not 50 million pounds, 30, 40 million pounds on a striker this summer to replace Tony for six months, but that doesn't really make any sense. So I think sometimes it's not a question of whether you can buy a player or not, it's whether you should buy a player or not. And I think Brentford are very good at that. So that's something I've learned as well. Well, that moves us quite nicely on to the question about Brentford's recruitment. So, yeah, in episode two you of Access All Areas Brentford, you talk a lot about the, the process that Brentford have in place. Obviously, recruitment is all about players. And so let's just start off with a few of, of the players that are often mentioned when it comes to Brentford recruitment. So in the podcast series, you mentioned BMW, which is Ben Rama, Mope and Watkins. That was the front three when they were getting promoted into the Premier League. But there's still been a steady stream of players across the last few seasons where Brentford have made money from. So we've talked about David Raya, Ivan Tony. we've talked about as well. These are players who they've bought in cheap and then they they have raised the the, the value of those players. Brian and Bumo as well, you've talked about, um, definitely increased his value as well. Um, Jensen, Norgard, Pinnock, all of whom were signed, uh, I think in the same season for around £3 million, which is which is nuts because they're worth way more than that. Um, that, that valuation is per transfer marked. What is it, do you think, that makes Brentford's recruitment so good? I think, firstly, um, they're working with a lot of data. And I know that lots of clubs use data. Well, pretty much every club. If a club's not using data these days, then <laughs> go and sign up to some, data, some sort of data company now. But I think the fact that they're using Matthew Benham's data um, from his company, Smart Odds, definitely gives them an edge. Um, I think it's just they're willing to take a few risks, you know, you look at some of the players they've signed, they were coming from the Danish Superliga or they were coming from, I remember when they signed Norgard from Fiorentina, I think he'd played six games for Fiorentina. So on the basis of it, there were players with quite bad reputations at that point in time. And I think Brentford were able to take a step back and not look at that player's position right there and then, but kind of contextualise it and think, Okay, it's not worked out for this player here, but we think we've got the right environment to make them thrive. And one thing that really stood out was Lee Dykes, who's their technical director, who, you know, who's basically in charge of all their recruitment, said, it's about building squads. It's not just about signing a player because he's really good. You have to have an understanding of, of how you're going to use him. So I guess, again, to, to keep using Tony, Tony's a great example of that. Brentford knew that they had... Um, Brian and Bumo, Sergi Canos, two great wingers who like to cut inside and shoot, but could also like go around the outside and put crosses into the box. I think the first time Tony scored um, outside of the box for Brentford was like his 50th goal or something like that. All of his goals were pretty much in the 18-yard box, in the six-yard box, tucking away cutbacks. So if your team is built in that manner by a striker who is going to play in that way um, so I think that's why their recruitment's so good just because they're able to just work out how everything kind of fits together and Ben Mee was another good example they said it's not just about what Ben Mee brings as a centre-back with Premier League experience it's about how he passes that experience on to Rico Henry to Ethan Pinnock to Aaron Hickey 
it's not often that we see two left-sided centre-backs play together in a partnership, but Pinnock and me have done it exceptionally well last year. And I also think the fact Mee's 5'11", which is small for a centre-back, I think it's fair to say. I hope he's not, I hope he's not listening. Um, but he's actually very, very good in the air, whereas Pinnock is quicker. So what you'd actually see is Ben Mee will go for the first header and Pinnock will kind of drop off. And even having that understanding of how those two players would play together, I think it's quite clever. And I have no doubt they would have done their research on that before they signed me. You started episode two of Access All Areas by talking about Moneyball. Uh, Moneyball being the approach to sports recruitment that was popularised by the film of the same name, starring Brad Pitt and telling the stories of the story of the Oakland A's changing fortune when they adopt this data-led approach yeah. to, to recruitment. There seemed to be quite a bit of pushback from <laughs> the guys at Brentford when, you, when people were using that term to talk about what they're doing in recruitment. So why do you think that was the case? I think Moneyball is quite like an easy phrase to use and it gives people this perception of a load of scientists in white lab coats in a room basically looking at a screen and crunching numbers um, obviously there's an element to it of that they've got to be you know Phil Giles who I mentioned earlier who's Brentford's director of football I think he studied mathematics at Newcastle University for eight years like which is just you know that's levels of intelligence that goes way beyond my my understanding um so there's definitely a level of you need to be very good at analyzing numbers and looking into data and things like that but that's not to say that traditional scouting doesn't happen you know when they signed Mbumo they'd looked at 50 video scouting reports and broken down his strengths and his weaknesses when they signed Ayer from Celtic um, I think they'd analyzed over 120 of his games um, and that wasn't just using numbers and they'd basically gone through and if it was a great performance he got a green light and if it was a bad performance he got a red light so yes numbers might help them identify Christopher Iyer or Brian Mbumo but then they've still got people who are going to objectively look at them and decide whether they're a good player or not. Yeah I think there's some sometimes like an element of it's almost like cheating if Moneyball, right? It's yeah. kind of like, oh, we found a loophole in the system. and or, or even this idea that, you know, it's almost like magic. You just need to have really, you have this magic trick which gives you great players. But and I, I, should, I should quickly say as well that there's, there's one really good example of um, their use of, of data. Two, actually, that both relate to players in non-league who are in their B team at the moment and are currently out on loan. So Finn Stevens was released by Arsenal when he was 16 and he went... Um, and joined the National League side. And I think he was 16, 17 years old, playing non-league week in, week out against people two, three, four times his age. So obviously that's going to ping up on the data. Wow, you've got someone very, very young competing against people way older than him. That doesn't necessarily mean he's good though. But then Brentford go down, scout and watch him and think the most impressive aspect about Finn is his mentality at 16 years old to go and play with people twice his size. I struggle to play f football with people five years older than me now, let alone if I was 16 and you know five foot six or, or whatever size I was back then. That's quite like a terrifying thing to do. And then I've also seen Finn Stevens, I think he's 18, 19 now, play with people much older than him and shout at them and tell them what to do. You can't pick that up from looking at numbers in a database. You have to go down and scout people in real life and do that. So that's what they would have done. They would have flagged him up originally because of his age and his lack of experience, but then have gone down, seen his mentality, seen his obvious quality on the ball as well and decided, okay, 
Maybe he's not ready for Arsenal yet. Maybe he's not ready for Brentford's first team now. But as a player here, he's got the raw materials to do something really good. So in the episode, you talked to Lee Dykes, who's the technical director of Brentford, as you said, very important in terms of the recruitment side of mm-hmm. things. And you talked to him about the data model that they, they use to recruit. What did he tell you about the way that Brentford are using data in their recruitment? Probably confess, I tried to get as much as possible out of him. <laughs> and he, uh, <laughs> For obvious reasons, he wasn't going to tell me everything. But um, he said that Brentford monitor or have a database of around 85,000 players, which is astounding. And then he said he brings it down into a manageable number of 5,000. And, <laughs> and, and then it didn't really click in my brain straight away. It was afterwards when you know we were making the podcast. I was like, 5,000 players is a big, big number. But it gives you an idea of just how um, thorough Brentford are. And he also said that for every position, they've got six key criteria um, that players that they would like players to have. So an example he gave me was with fullbacks and wingbacks, uh, they look at their running capacity uh, because he said Andy Robertson, for example, at Liverpool's running capacity is off the scale. So if you're going to play as a left back or a left wing back in a system that demands you push up as much as you defend, you basically need to have the stamina. So I thought that was quite interesting. Um, and then he also spoke about how he thinks that there are 16 positions on a football pitch. Um, last time I checked there were only 11 Um, but it sounds so simplistic but he just says the example he gives is Cristiano Ronaldo and Ryan Giggs they're both left wingers in their prime but they play in very very different ways so you should almost categorise them as such you should have two left wingers two right wingers there's obviously different versions of strikers different versions of central midfielders but that's all important to the way that you scout because let's say Brentford need a left winger. Well, do they need a left winger who's going to go to the byline and cross or do they want a left winger who's going to cut inside and shoot? Um, It sounds simplistic, but I feel like not every club in the world would look at it at that forensic detail. In terms of those 16 positions then, the impression is that he has 16 profiles that they scout for that could fit into the Brentford squad, right? Yeah, because Thomas Frank plays multiple different formations as I alluded to earlier. So he plays 3-5-2, 4-3-3 and if Brentford are losing in a game he'll normally switch to quite an aggressive 3-4-3 that basically has a winger at right wing back and left wing back as well as three strikers or three forwards rather. Um, so you need to have defenders who are comfortable playing in a two and in a three. You need to have full backs who can play right back and right wing back. You need strikers who are going to be able to play out wide and through the middle, especially because it offers you a bit of unpredictability and tactical flexibility. So you need to make sure that you've got all those different positions covered. So depending on what Brentford's needs are in a game, you can bring someone on who can do that. And obviously, a lot of the time, players fill multiple roles. So Josh De Silva is very much, a, I think, a central attacking midfielder in his, on his best day, but he can also play right wing. So it's also just looking at it like that. You've already said to me that all football clubs are using data in their recruitment one way or another. And there's no doubt that Brentford are doing it better than than other teams. But to me, it didn't really sound like what Brentford are doing is that much different in principle to what a lot of other clubs are doing when they use data, which is, and I think Lee Dyke says this in in the episode, he says, we're basically using data to filter down a huge number of potential targets. We get them to a manageable figure, which we think we can then hand on to our our regular scouting department to have a look through. there's a reference, as you mentioned as well there, to a proprietary data set, which is coming from Matthew Benham's side. So they're getting a little bit of an advantage from that. But beyond that, it sounded to me fairly standard. So there's clearly something more to Brentford's recruitment than just, you know, using data in a way that's going to bring in the best players. 
Yeah, like I said a minute ago, I think it's partially because of the way that they um, think about building their squad. So they're making sure that they're not buying multiple players for the same position who are going to block each other's pathways. Um, I think the fact that they were constantly looking at different markets and undervalued markets and bringing players through like that. I think they also, you know, you look at someone like Ethan Pinnock, who they signed. He's a non-league boy, right? Yeah. Exactly. So lots of people on that basis alone, knowing that he's got a non-league background, maybe categorise him as saying that he's only ever going to reach a certain level. But Brentford would have done the kind of requisite data and research that they needed to, to say, we think we can take him to, a, to an even higher level. So I think it's about... Why is Brentford's recruitment so good compared to other teams? I think they're prepared for multiple different eventualities. Um, I think they do, you know, Thomas Frank has a famous no dickheads policy. Um, so basically they take a lot of importance on a person's character and their personality as much as how good of a footballer they are. Um, and I think also as much as Ivan Tony and Christian Eriksen have kind of grabbed some of the headlines at Brentford over the last couple of seasons, they are a team that's kind of bigger than the sum of its parts. I think everybody fits together so well, they kind of bring the best out of each other. And I think that's important. Yeah, and it comes back to what we were talking about before, which is there is this central process that everyone buys into. And I think when your recruitment department are able to buy into that system as well, right? You've got the, 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 the playing staff, you've got the coaching staff, everyone knows what they're doing and you're recruiting to fit into that kind of you know, fundamental, central, singular th mentality, I think that probably makes your recruitment uh, a lot easier as well, right? Yeah, ali alignment's huge. If everybody from the top to the bottom of the club knows exactly what their recruitment strategy is and knows the type of player that they're looking for, I think Lee Dykes even says it in the podcast, you know, if he's got a scout out in Ukraine and a scout out in France, they both know what they're looking for. So in theory, there shouldn't be a scenario where they're ringing him or ringing someone else in the recruitment department saying, well, I'm looking at this player, but I don't quite know if he's right for Brentford. Well, the criteria is kind of there for you in, in black and white. So it just removes some of that uncertainty. And it certainly, it doesn't completely eliminate the risk, but it certainly makes the chances of Brentford signing someone that's not right for them smaller. I began this section by reading out a long list of names of some of the successes of, of Brentford's recruitment. So Ben Rama, Mope, Watkins, Tony, Raya, Mbomo, Jensen, Norgard, Pinnock, like lots of real success that they've got there. But one of the things that unites these players actually is that they were all signed by Brentford when they weren't in the Premier League. Um, instinctively to me anyway, and I could be wrong on this, but it feels like it's easier to have recruitment hits outside of the top division because it's so much easier to find value there, right? It's, it's one thing for a championship side to bring in a, a National League player. It's another thing for a Premier League side yeah. to do it. Um, so, and obviously on top of that, once you get into the Premier League, you start adding a premium on the market as well, right? Teams are going to charge you more for players because they know you have more money because you're in the Premier League. So I guess my question to you is, what have you made of Brentford's recruitment since they came up into the Premier League? And do you think that in the Premier League, they're going to have to change the, the way that they do recruitment? And do you think that that means they'll lose a little bit of an edge in, in, in that respect? I think one of the points you mentioned there was um, it's easier to find value when you're in the Championship than when you're in the Premier League and that's completely true because the circle or the pool of players that are going to improve you in the Championship is huge. The pool of players that's going to improve you in the Premier League is a lot, lot smaller. Um, there's only going to be a certain amount that's going to take you from being you know, a 15th place team to a 14th place team or a 10th place team um, and it's much harder to 
to find them. Well, it's probably not harder to find those players because those players are so good, but it's harder to, to get them out of the clubs that they're at. What do I think of their um, recruitment since they've been promoted to the Premier League? There's a couple of players I think it's still a little bit too early to tell. Um, you know, Christopher was their club record signing. They signed him um, the season they got promoted. And I think everybody knows that the talent is there with Aya. Um, he's very good at progressing the ball by dribbling with it. Um, very quick, very tall centre-back. Um, but he's just really struggled with injuries, especially over the last season. So in his two seasons at Brentford, I think he's played less than 50% of the games, which is obviously not ideal for anybody. So he played really well against Tottenham on Sunday in an unfamiliar left-sided left centre-back role, actually. So I think if he kicks on uh, this season, you know, you can definitely put him down as a tick. Um, Johan Viss has been... So much fun since he joined Brentford from Lorient a couple of years ago. You know, the chips against Liverpool, you know, he scored a great chip against Nottingham Forest as well. Um, so he's definitely can go down as a tick. I think I he think, might be my favourite player as they've got at the moment. Yeah, he's he, such a fun player. Like he's, and he's always smiling as well. Um, Hickey's been great. Hickey's so much fun to watch. Um, I think people probably realise by now I play football quite a lot. I'm not quick. I'm not strong by any stretch of the imagination. Um, my one relative skill is that I'm two-footed. So any player that's two-footed, I immediately like. Uh, but even apart from that, the way Hickey just glides past players and, you know, he only just turned 20 in June. He's been great. Um, and I think there's a couple of players who... There are probably just question marks over them. Damsgaard is one of them. He obviously had a phenomenal um, performances for Denmark at the Euro 2020. He obviously scored that infamous free kick against um, England in the semi-finals. Um, but he basically has quite a rare form of arthritis, which he suffered with when he was at Sampdoria. That's all been sorted now, but it just means that he missed about six, seven months of, of football. Um, and he also had knee surgery. So it's taken him a little bit of time, I think, to build up to full fitness. Then you factor into account moving to a new club, in a new country, in a new league. So he's not quite fully adapted how I think Brentford would have liked yet. Same with Keane Lewis Potter, but Keane Lewis Potter, who also was for a spell their club record signing, was ripping it up in the championship for, for Hull City and a very bad Hull City team. And I think he played... 45 games in one season and 46 games in the next season. So his durabil durability was off the scale. Second, he joins Brentford, starts picking up all these niggling injuries and needs surgery and things like that. So you can see that the talent is there with Damsgaard and Lewis Potter. They just need to be a little bit more lucky with, with injury and form and things like that. So having said all that, Brentford are obviously recruiting these players for a lot more money now. Um, yeah, I've got, I actually got the top 10 list here and I think there's only one player who in the top 10 of record signings for them who was signed outside of the Premier League and that was Ollie Watkins. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think Brentford have now broken their transfer record six times in two years. So it's gone from Christopher Eyre, which was around £13.5 million two years ago, to Nathan Collins at £23 million. And, you know, They've bid for Nico Gonzalez from Fiorentina for, I think it was 30 million euros. Uh, and they basically told Nottingham Forest, we'll, we'd be prepared to bid to 35 million pounds for Brennan Johnson if he is for sale. So they're gradually going up and up. Well, not gradually. They're going up and up quite quickly. Obviously, the margin fair is a lot, lot smaller now. When you're signing players from the French second division, like Sai Ben Rama, for three million pounds in a championship, OK, you probably have less money at that point in the club's... Um, journey if you, if you, for want of a better word um, but three million pounds not that much it doesn't really I hope I'm explaining this correctly but it doesn't really take 
Benarama doesn't really need to do that much to justify that outlay. Whereas when you're signing Collins for 23 million pounds, he needs to do a lot to justify that price and then go up in price. So I think the sums that they're throwing around now, the, yeah, the margin for error is just a little bit bigger in terms of whether those signings work out or not. Um, so it'll be intriguing to see. But again, having said all that, the key thing is that all of the players I just mentioned are pretty much 22, 23, 24. So time is on their side, even if they don't necessarily work out as Brentford, that they're still young enough that they'll still probably recruit a pretty decent fee and they might go on to be good somewhere else. If they were paying £40 million for 28, 29-year-old strikers, I'd definitely be raising my eyebrows a little bit more. But they've got time for all of these signings to work out. It's funny that we're making this podcast about Brentford because a few seasons ago we could probably have done the same kind of episode with Southampton who were touted the same sort of way that, that Brentford are being touted now before it ended in disaster and relegation uh, last season. But do you think that everything that we've said about Brentford and, and talking particularly about this this notion that they have this, this shared mentality, identity, process, sensible thinking, do you think that means that they're going to avoid that kind of trajectory that Southampton have taken I think it'd be foolish to say that they avoid it and that they've kind of cracked the the mystery of the the Premier League like I said Thomas Frank says it in a lot of his press conferences that Brentford could kind of finish anywhere it might only take you know a couple of injuries to the wrong player for for Brentford to be in a, a little bit of trouble um so I think the fact that they're very pragmatic and recognize that for the time being in Brentford's genesis avoiding relegation is still the biggest priority. I think the fact that they're open about that is quite important. Um, they're not thinking too far ahead. And Phil Giles, the director of football, said something quite interesting to me where he basically said, it's not really about whether we can eclipse finishing ninth. It's about are the players becoming better? Is Brentford as a club becoming better? And I thought that was quite you know, a poignant comment because he did, you know, very rightly said, Brentford could end up on the same amount of points this year and finish in the bottom half of the table, or they could finish on the same amount of points this year and finish fourth. The Premier League is very hard to predict. So how do you measure success? Because your points total one season might be worse than it was the year before, but because of the rest of the league, you might finish higher. So I think there are definitely lessons to, to learn from Leicester City and Southampton. And if you're looking at it from a Leicester City perspective, it became very clear around 18 months ago that they were maybe spending too much money and had to rein it in very quickly. And then also they were kind of signing players for Brendan Rodgers. Yes, Thomas Frank has been at Brentford for a very, very long time, but it's very clear that Brentford have a transfer committee of Thomas Frank, the owner Matthew Benham, Phil Giles, the director of football and the technical director Lee Dykes. So four people need to be in agreement for a signing to happen. And I think again, that avoids the possibility that a manager's really, really keen on a player and then he just does not work out whatsoever. Because then if the manager then leaves, you might be stuck with loads of players who, a little bit like Tottenham with Antonio Conte, had been recruited to play in a very, very particular system. That manager then leaves. So what happens with those players? So I think that mitigates it a little bit. Um, and then also, it's just about making sure Brentford's finances are, are tight and they're running in a sustainable way. They've grown their infrastructure. So, you know, they've improved their training ground. So it's not just all about pumping money into the playing side. It's about growing the club organically, trying to make them get bigger and bigger and bigger. So it's not just all about selling players to keep them, keep them up and relying on 
broadcast revenue from the Premier League. They look at different streams and different things. It's also about continuing to invest in their B team. They brought the academy back. Um, so they've got a couple of really exciting B team and academy players. You know, Michael Wallachigbe looked really good in pre-season. Uh, they brought Ethan Brearley from Rochdale. He looks really good. They brought um, Kim Ji-soo, uh, who obviously starred for South Korea at the Under-20 World Cup. So as much as we're talking about these players, such as your Kevin Sharders, Mark Fleckens, your Nathan Collins, they are also spending very small fees on very talented 18, 19, 20-year-olds who will hopefully become a part of the first team in two, three years' time. So they're always looking ahead to the future. Mm. Well, I could talk to you about Brentford all day long and no doubt we will continue talking about <laughs> Brentford in the future. But this podcast does have to come to an end. The series that we've been talking about is called Access All Areas Brentford, which is four episodes long and they're all available on the Athletics Go Deeper podcast and, of course, available on all good podcast aggregators. Jay, you're on Twitter at JDMHarris, I believe. Yep, that's correct. So all of your stuff is going to be over there if people want to find out more about, about Brentford. But uh, to be honest, if people listen to this podcast and then go and catch up with the other four episodes of your p podcast series, I think they'll know everything yep. there is to know about Brentford. But thank you so much for coming on today. No, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it.